Nicole Crowder is a storyteller. Her medium is furniture. Fast forward June of 2020, after the uprisings because of the George Floyd death, there was such a shift for me in terms of how I wanted to think about my work, create the work, and who I wanted in terms of publications or brands to engage with that work. With an emphasis on slow creation, the Minneapolis-based artist finds inspiration in everything from a piece of sticky wet fruit, like an orange, to buttons, jewels, or eclectic fabrics from around the world, with the goal of creating pieces that are generational. I'm Nicole Crowder, and this is a lesson on soul work. earliest memory of being creative? My earliest memory, I think, was when I was living in Germany. I was really young then. I was born there. My parents were in the military. And I remember my brother and I had bought some construction paper and some markers, and I was on the living room floor. And I was drawing, I must have been, I don't know, three or four, maybe. And I was making this castle, essentially. And to me, in my head, it was like the most extravagant tent or castle that I'd ever made. I had all these details and fixtures and colors. And I showed it to my brother and I was like, look at this castle. And I think just him being excited for me. And because he's about six years older than I am. Cole, this is amazing. Mom, look at this castle. And I'm sure that this picture was not (laughs) incredible. The squiggles were everywhere. I don't know. I look at your work. I'm thinking it probably was awesome. (laughs) I'm terrible at drawing. That's a muscle I've been trying to improve. But at the time, I just remember being so excited about making these structures and going through as much paper as I could because everything seemed to be like my mind was wide open for Mm -hmm. ideas and creating, you know, beautiful uh, pictures. So that was my my earliest memory. Wow. It's been a minute since I dipped back into that, but it, it feels good to think about it. Did you live in other cities as well, other countries? We did. So I was born in Germany and we lived in South Korea and Seoul for about four years or so. We lived in Japan. We lived all along like the East Coast and the South here in the U.S. The Midwest is where my parents eventually would settle and retire. Well, actually, my dad retired in Korea. And then when we got back to the States, we settled in in, uh, Minnesota. Wow. been a lot of bouncing, a lot of homes, and it's been really hard to answer that question of where are you from? Because mm. there's no hometown that necessarily roots me, but I feel so connected to all these different places. Yeah, and that, that travel really informs your work. But before we get there, you had a first career as a photo editor. Yes. How did you? <laughs> yeah. How did you come to that? And then how did that? evolve into the upholstery. I feel like you're a storyteller through upholstery. Yeah. Mm, thank you for that. It's definitely been a nonlinear road in terms of career. I was a photo editor for about 10 years in DC and I knew that I wanted to be in the photo world since I was like, I don't know, in in high school. I started getting into photography around that point and then when I was in DC, I was working with the newspaper and then with the magazine handling like everything from travel features to news stories to celebrity features. 
And I loved that whole world because you're collaborating with graphic designers and art directors to make a package, to tell a story visually based on some copy. And it really pushed me creatively. I think it also challenged me, not challenged me, it really opened me up to so many other mediums and other styles of creativity that I subconsciously still adapt and and use in my upholstery work. And that transition from photo editing to upholstery didn't feel really seamless at the time, Mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot of interconnectedness with both kinds of crafts. Mm -hmm. I'm still taking these sort of disparate parts, one being photos, another one being fabric, and trying to tell a story through them that resonates with people, that does justice to the piece itself. And with with photo editing, I had moved to the West Coast. This was 2016 now, and I was working with a, a streaming service at the time, but I just knew that I was a little bit, I think a little bit tired or maybe just getting burned out with working behind the desk and and looking at photos and just some parts of the industry as well weren't really resonating with me. And I had been doing upholstery in the back since 2013 Mm or around that time. And you started a business very briefly at that time as well. I did. Yes. I had a brief business at the time called Third and Grace. And I forget how I came up with that title, but I think three has just always been a really significant number for me. And I had moved from DC to Baltimore because i just assumed it was too expensive to have a business in DC, but I was so exhausted with this first iteration trying to get into upholstery. This was 2013. I didn't have a sense for time management, money management, structure, pricing, any of that stuff. And it was a learning lesson for sure. And so I went back to photo editing briefly, but upholstery was just always there. It felt like a, it felt like a calling, honestly, Mm -hmm. something that I just, you know, was in my bones. And in 2017, January, that's when I decided that I really wanted to try this thing as part of my livelihood. I wanted to make this lifestyle transition for myself, for my career. And I went full time with it in DC. I didn't have a single client, didn't have a single chair, but I had a website already, just skeletal form. I set up like a Yelp business page advertising my services. And within a week, the phone was just ringing off the hook and it was just super steady. Were you supported in making your transition when you moved mm-hmm. from this long-time career? I I felt supported by my friends, I would say. I'm an Aries and I'm very impulsive. When I have an idea about something, I'm going headfirst into it. And my friends were like, I would not be surprised if you like picked up and started a new business at all. My family, on the other hand, deep questions and worry. I was working at the time with a streaming service where I was making over 200000 a year. And my dad could not understand it all. And understandable, I, I get it. <laughs> he was like, why are you moving LA to move back to DC in the middle of winter to be self-sustaining in, in your money when you don't even have a client? I He had my uncle call me, which my uncle rarely calls, but was also trying to convince me. And that was a whole transition period where I had to learn language to talk to my family and, and, and let them know this isn't something that I'm trying to do haphazardly. It's also not something that I am willing to leave or walk away from. This is something I feel very much called to. And I had to lean so much into my own self and my own sort of spirituality that you can, you know, take this leap of faith and know that you will be supported and that it will work in your favor, even if you don't have, you know, necessarily the 
the blessing, you know, of your family. I did not have the support, I would say, of early partners at that time. And that was also another thing for me to to grow from is like, what do I really need right now? I need to know that I'm moving in my purpose and I also need support in doing that. And so I had to support yourself for myself. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you're in that transition, there's so little space that you have and so little energy you have for people who are putting questions and doubt in your mind. You really have to separate yourself. You're talking about following a calling, but intuition plays very strongly into your work. So was this an intuitive hit? And how do you trust your intuition? Or how do you know it's intuition? Mm. And how do you not know that it's it's ego or old belief Mm. or whatever it is. Great question because ego was certainly baked into when I first started upholstery in 2013, it was that desire to be seen. It was the desire to just create, even though I was tired, I was stressed, I was worried. I didn't have a sense of peace about me. And I was also asking too many people for their opinions for their input, which to me is always a first sign as well that like I'm not settled in something because I I rarely need to ask someone else for a decision, you know, on how I move that impacts my life or my business decisions. Because you're they on the need- love channel. You're so connected to source love. Yeah. You know, yeah. I feel like a bit of my ego, it's not completely gone because it, I think we all have a bit of it there that that gives us that confidence and lets us know that our what we're doing is significant. I don't have the ego of, I need my work to be seen, that I need people to like validate it, that I need to be the best at it at all. I'm all about knowing who I am and wanting to share that gift with others. And hopefully that energy resonates and that people look at me as someone who is creating from a space of deep, intentional love, who is really connected to her ancestors, who has really tapped into her gift. And it's not about, I need to, force that on you. I need to make you see it as well. It doesn't really resonate with me, but in terms of recognizing, it's so personal. It's so intentional. I tap into my intuition through meditation, through prayer, through song. It comes in many ways and it's a feeling. It's a feeling that starts in your gut. And that's why I'm like, yeah. I feel this. And I ask myself, if I have an idea for a project, am I the right person to bring this forward? Mm -hmm. Is this the right time to bring it forward? Mm -hmm. Is this a collaborative effort? Is this something that I need to be doing in tandem with someone else or passing this idea to someone else to, for them to see if they want to do that? There's, there's more questions that I ask myself first, just this sort of internal processing rather than the external, like, what do you all think? Is this the right thing? Is this the right time? Because no one knows those answers except for you. Just blown away when I look at some of the pieces, the custom pieces that you have Mm. on your website, because they feel like characters, you know, they feel like little talking people, their chairs, (laughs) obviously, but they have their own way of moving in the space Mm. and they have their own vibe quality. There's just so many things going on with them. It's they're definitely conversation pieces. You talk about slow creation. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. First, I love 
the description that you just gave of the work. That means so much because it is. There's so much of my personality that I'm putting into the work, but also trying to read the work and see what each individual furniture piece's personality is. And so I love the idea of them being characters because it is. I think of them as getting dressed when they're all when they're all done. But that slow creation was basically an ethos that I learned to adopt over time because when I first started upholstery and even just like my personality previously was talking very fast, working very quickly, making really quick decisions. And with upholstery, it's such a craft, even though you've been doing it for years, it really requires you to slow down and pay attention to details and fabric will tear very easily. It's easy to sew something wrong or staple your finger, whatever it is. And I was making a lot of mistakes, simple, easy mistakes when I was first starting, but I wasn't catching them either. My client would catch it. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing to hear was a client who was saying like, oh, the quality wasn't, you know, sharp. That's when I was like, okay, everything has to slow down here. There's no rush with this process. There, there shouldn't be, at least. And the slow creation is me giving myself time to, from A to B, be inspired by a project, to cull photos for inspiration and references, to look for the right fabric that fits a piece rather than just trying to find any sort of fabric to reupholster something with. It comes through the process itself, making patterns and making sure that my cuts are right. It's that whole adage of, Measure twice, cut once is absolutely apt in this work. And doing that really slow, deliberate quality control check so that all the details have been thought about. I'm not just rushing something out for the sake of productivity, but it's really seeing and taking time, spending time with the piece to produce the best work that I can and the best vision for it that I can. You talk about the pieces as generational yeah. Can you tell me about that? Absolutely. I think that has become so much more paramount in my mind the more I'm doing this work. Because when I first started, I think I was just designing things to get my own visions out in the world, to make pretty pieces. And that's wonderful, too. I'm very, very here for art, just for beauty kind of sake. But the more I was thinking, like, is this work, who is it in service to, what meaning do I want to have behind it, I kept thinking of my own sort of trajectory when I'm moving from apartment to apartment, I'm always buying new furniture. And I was like, why am I not just keeping things that I've had previously? Mm. And I realized that even in my own family, to, through no fault of their own, we weren't really handing down heirlooms necessarily. Mm. I think it was just easier to clear out, start over, or people just didn't think maybe that piece was significant enough to hold on to. And what I want to do more is create these sort of new heirlooms for people like myself, you know, who are creating our own families, who are beginning our own legacies, who are looking at our furniture items as reflections of who we are, where we are in our lives, our personalities, and hopefully carrying those things forward. Whether you decide to have children or not, mm -hmm. you know, you can still extend your own legacy and have your family in whatever form you want and carry these pieces forward. And so I started to really think of the furniture as it having its own continuing lineage and storyline and that being part of someone else's story as well. And the designs just shifted for me in how I created the work and the details that I put into it and the accents and the notes and how I even reflect on the history of this piece. I do so much more history and research on what era is this chair from? What fabrics were used on it earlier? What's the padding? How old is it? All those questions become much more 
paramount in my mind as I'm working. Did you notice, and this is for my own, my own observation of creatives, mm. did your career trajectory, did it flourish more when you made this decision to have a conversation about lineage through the work? Mm. Do you find that you became having access to bigger opportunities, more successful? Would you, can you see yeah. a correlation there at all? Absolutely. It almost felt this shift that I was making personally through my work was converging with things happening in the U.S. specifically because this was probably around, yeah, March, I would say, March, April of 2020 mm -hmm. when everything was changing for everyone. Yeah. But particularly fast forward June of 2020 after the uprisings because of the George Floyd death, there was such a shift for me in terms of how I wanted to think about my work, create the work, and who I wanted in terms of publications or brands to engage with that work. A lot of brands were reaching out and it was up for me to do my due diligence in making sure that these partnerships were not just mutually beneficial, but that they also understood this work is rooted in deeper than just visibility. This is about reflecting a, that I'm a Black designer wanting to create in a way that feels like that is coming or pulling inspiration from an African diaspora that I am a part of. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to amplify all of that work and pay homage to some of these early styles of furniture where you had African designers creating pieces that would later inspire a lot of designs by European designers. And so once I started doing that, it became so much more than just, I'm using this print or to put on this piece of furniture. It was like, no, this print, the, the pattern is inspired by an, a Senegambian design or a, a Ghanaian design mm -hmm. or a black pattern designer here in the United States. And all of that, I think, because I was able to speak to it a bit more when I was talking with brands, there was that desire to also amplify that message. And so those opportunities have been really fruitful, have been plentiful, and it's been a great stage for me to bring this message really of lineage of it's this origin story that I'm really interested in mm -hmm. and trying to get to like the beginning of something to pay homage to that. And the work is a starting point. And then there's a whole relationship with these other brands that helps me to continue on with that. And one of the brands that reached mm -hmm. out was World Market. Yes. And which so, was wild. <laughs> and so this is a collection that takes you out of repurposing into mm -hmm. building something new. Yes. And I thought what was so interesting about it is that you made sure that fabrics were all natural, that they were sourced from American companies, mm -hmm. that the woods were born out of a renewable process in India, yeah. and that a tree was planted each time one yes. was used, yeah. which I actually thought was a really powerful statement on your values, mm -hmm. having those values extended through the collaborations that you do, because so many times designers and creatives in general, we get excited about opportunities, but we forget that we are the vehicle for a, a much larger message. And that yes. service that you mentioned earlier is such a huge component of the way that I approach my work and mm -hmm. ask others to approach their work is what are you leaving behind? Yes. Oh, you've just, you framed it so beautifully. And 
that intention in terms of how do I reduce waste? And this isn't trying to be didactic and saying don't waste and save everything, but it's just there are so many vehicles for reducing our waste. So the EPA reported that there's over 900 million tons of furniture alone that gets wasted each year. And that rivals waste in the fashion industry, which I know we talk about a lot. But in the furniture industry, you have everything from the textiles themselves to the padding material to the frame, the furniture frame itself. And, and the packaging. Like, Don't and the packaging. The packaging. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The packaging is, is crucial. And with World Market, which was a brand that I already just stood behind in, in many ways, and I was shopped there myself, when they reached out, it felt so aligned because, well, one, they wanted me and my signature. It wasn't about fitting into their brand, but it was like, we want you to bring yourself here and put your stamp on the pieces you want to create and partner in that way. But also that freedom, like you said, to partner with American textile brands. One of the designers who's become a, a really great friend of mine, her name is Anicia Durka. She works for one of the companies who we used, P. Kaufman, and she is a black pattern maker. She's been in this field for decades. And unbeknownst to me at the time, I was using a lot of her fabrics just in my personal work, even my dining chairs here. Mm. And she sent me a message on Instagram introducing herself. And I was like, you're a black woman? What is this? <laughs> I was just blown. And so being able to have a lot of my fabrics for the collection also be made by her and with other American-made companies was just incredible. But also that deep partnership of working with the furniture makers in India, too, and being on those Zoom calls, having so much transparency about the process, choosing the kinds of woods that we were using and knowing what part of the country they were coming from. I I didn't honestly think it was going to be that transparent and involved when I came on board for this project. And so it just made it that much more significant for me because the nature of my work itself is is repurposing, salvaging old stuff. But since I was getting into that more manufactured vein, I just wanted to make sure that we weren't producing thousands of pieces that were going to also end up on the sidewalk. There was like an ecosystem there that was centered on renewing or repurposing things. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I I loved that you said that the designer you were using was a black woman designer as well, mm-hmm. because you talk about having synergy with a piece. And I yeah. really do believe as creatives, we're connected unknowingly via the energy that we put into whatever artwork we make. So yeah. that vision that life had for you at some point also involved her. Absolutely. To you, right? And you're magnetized by this vision or able to carry it forward. It's pretty powerful. It really is. It, it makes me emotional just thinking about it. Like, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Synchronicity yeah. is what they like to call it, but it's. I feel it's much deeper than that. It's much more divine. In terms of the visibility piece, you had some press before World Market, mm-hmm. but I'm guessing maybe not on that level. Is that true? Yeah, I had you know, different print features and digital features in and around DC, primarily where I was living at the time. And I'm, I forgot to even ask World Market how they came across my work because that invitation dovetailed right when I had had a feature in Martha Stewart Living uh, magazine. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it was because of then. I had just started my meditation pillows in mm-hmm. March of 2020 as a way, for one, for my own personal meditation process, but also create this piece that could be of support to folks who are now living at home. 
Mm. And it was another vehicle for me to use even more prints and patterns and combinations. It was on the Issa Rae show as well. Yes. Yes. The three. Sure. Yeah. Which is uh, such a dream. I love that show. And I screamed so loudly when I saw <laughs> I feel like I had prepared myself for that invitation. I had already, for years, have been sketching out pieces of furniture that I would want for an ideal furniture collection in the future. So when they approached me, I was surprised by the invitation in that it was so soon in my career. At that point, I only had been reupholstering for about three years. Yes, but you've been preparing for much exactly. longer. So that preparation was there. When World Market reached out, I already had 10 sketches prepared to show them. And I didn't feel that sort of imposter syndrome where I was like, ooh, should I take this? Is this my opportunity? Am I good enough for this? I had been working on this for so long. And then there was a lot of of attention coming from brands. And I did grapple with that, as I think a lot of other Black creatives did around this time, because it's on the heels of a man's death. And you're wondering, okay, how do we conflate this racial injustice to let's give more visibility to black designers. Let's Mm -hmm. put more money in their pockets and stuff. And so I had to take a step back and realize this was an opportunity for me because it was my time. It was based on the work that I had. And there was, there was something that I needed to say. And my friends, I'm really grateful for them for also encouraging that. And we don't have to feel guilty about an opportunity, something you've been working toward. And once I reshifted my framing around it, I was able to really step into that opportunity and the subsequent ones and realize I can ask questions about these brands approaching me instead of just being excited about a shiny object. And that's what I was really grateful with World Market. They, Their first email to me was, we understand that there is a dearth in Black designers being visible in terms of their custom products being on a national stage in this way. We enjoy what you're producing and we want to work with you to put your vision out there a lot more. And I was ready for that opportunity. I was excited about it. So do you think that women lead differently? I think yes, naturally. Like there's so many experiences that you're pulling from, so many cultural backgrounds, so many benchmarks in your life leading up to you being in a leadership position that will impact how you lead. I think even within women, Black women lead differently than Asian, Latino, white women. Mm -hmm. And I think all that that nuance has to be accounted for in leadership. It's not a a blanket, this is how a woman leads, this is how a man leads. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly been in situations where I've had women leaders who I think were what is the word? They were a little perhaps masculine. Well, that or just stricter on me. And it could have been for various reasons. It could have been because I was younger than them. I was black. It could have been that I was a woman. And there's a sense of, I want to make sure that you are in the best shape possible. So I'm going to push you a little bit more, but everyone's communication style is different. Most of my mentors anyway, are all women. And I feel like it's not just because they're women, but me looking at who who reflects where I am and who ex- reflects my experience a bit more overall as a woman. It's a similar way that I you know, choose a woman for my therapist is just because there are certain nuances about women in general that I feel like it's that context is already built in. I don't have to explain that or read into it further, mm-hmm. but where the nuance has to come in is that our backgrounds are very different. Our experiences are different, as varied as our zodiac signs. So I do think, yeah, women do lead differently. 
are you interested in the word of feminine leadership? Does that feel... It feels restrictive. And also, I don't quite know what it means anymore, Mm -hmm. given that we have queer, we have Mm non-binary terms. I don't know, like feminine leadership as a term doesn't even appeal to me in the sense of, oh, I need to seek that out. I'm very interested in divine feminine energy, masculine energy. But in terms of leadership, no, because I think there are things that can be called from all types of leadership experiences. And I, I don't think it's a blanket way of saying women lead better, more clearly. Just there differently. Is differently. And that's amazing because sometimes we fall into this sort of this othering. And, and this might be a broader point that I was thinking about, but when it comes to categorizing or doing how publications would do lists, right. it's like 10 Black women designers to follow and 12 culture shifting Asian people in tech. That to me feels like an othering that doesn't allow me to just stand and present my work before a wide audience. And that was something that was happening a lot in around 2020 when lots of publications were doing lists to promote and, and amplify Black designers. But I want the space for that, again, the nuance, to to have a singular profile of this person where you can learn about them and their ethos and their practice and their stance versus just being lumped into a group. Yeah. A group on trend, like for the month. Exactly. Labor of the month. That's, yeah. Right. As opposed to the longevity that we were speaking of initially. Exactly. Longevity. Yeah. yeah, and I, I want my work to also resonate with men, with non-binary people. It has a feminine bent because I am, you know, a woman. But again, this is generational work for everyone to mm-hmm. have and to see themselves in. I felt that just this is just me personally. Mm-hmm. Your chairs feel definitely feminine. Yeah, but your world market work does feel like it could be. It's a bit of both. Yeah, and so. It makes sense when we're talking about who shops at World Market that mm-hmm. you would have something that would appeal to both. So that was of interest to me. Absolutely. I want my 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 dad, my brother, my boyfriend, I want anyone to be able to approach this work and be like, ooh, that would look really great in my corner or as a gift for my my niece, whoever it's it is. Still through your lens. Yeah. So very much so. through your lens. So yeah, thank you. Would you complete the sentence? My wish for every other woman is? To feel supported in every aspect of her life, her personal work, her professional life, and her spiritual growth, her mental health. That for me has made such a world of difference in even how I create, how I show up, giving space to to be vulnerable, to have questions, to change your mind and pivot and say, you know what? I've been in marketing for 20 years. I really want to now get into like baking cakes and to to have that support from people, even if it's just one person, but have that deep, genuine support that isn't just like blank where there's no sort of questions that are asked, but that curiosity is there, that investment is there in who you are, how you live, how you show up because it's rooted in, in care and in love. So that is my my deep wish for every woman to to feel supported. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. 
every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com.